everyone. Today I'm joined by cinematographer Bradley Stone Cipher. Bradley graduated from Brooks Institute of Photography, summa cum laude. His tireless hands-on approach to story, camera, and lighting have laid the groundwork for his generous work ethic. Bradley is a highly accomplished cinematographer who has lens narrative projects that have premiered at the largest film festivals and big screens worldwide, including car chase comedy hit and run by Dax Shepard, cult classic God Bless America, and Sundance Darling, The Vicious Kind. His feature documentary work, Call Me Lucky, premiered at Sundance, and his short form work, Me and Her, a cardboard puppet movie, which premiered at Sundance in 2014, is truly one of a kind. As a commercial DP, Bradley helped launch the Microsoft Common Campaign. He's had two Super Bowl commercials to date. He's also founded a successful production company with his wife, Island Creek Pictures. Bradley's passion for storytelling hinges on pairing meaningful stories with cinematic visuals. Please join me in welcoming Bradley Stonecipher. Hey Bradley, thank you so much for joining us today on What's My Frame. My pleasure, happy to be here. Can you start us off with your journey into the industry? Oh wow, um, let's see. Well, um, I grew up in Central Maryland and um, let's see, in 2003, I had been going to school in Central Pennsylvania studying communication and I really, you know, I was wandering a young 20 year old, not sure what I wanted to do, but when I thought about the things that really made me happy, it was the, some of the AV classes and the media classes and the storytelling classes, the mix between the, the physical and the creative. So I left that school and moved cross country and took a year off and ended up finding my way to Brooks Institute of Photography in uh, Santa Barbara and Ventura. And through that process, uh, I think I went in pie-eyed like every young individual trying to figure out what they're trying, they want to do. And you now I wanted to be a writer and a director and a producer, but I'm not sure all those, um, all those avenues really were understood at that time about what those responsibilities were, just because there's so many different roles in the filmmaking industry that you learn over time that aren't surface level to the general public. And then the more that I was involved in the classes, the, the mix between the, the technical and the creative really mended well for myself. I mean, I come from a fairly blue collar family that are all um, craftsmen and artisans and they're doing carpentry and masonry and doing their own total construction. So I, I kind of approached cinematography in the same way. It was the mix between appreciating the aesthetic as well as the process. And uh, that's really resonating. So then graduated um, from uh, Brooks Institute, which sadly no longer exists, uh, which is always odd to have a degree from a university that is no more, but I don't ever remember a time when uh, anyone's ever asked me for my degree anyway. And that's a valuable lesson for anyone in the film industry is there's many paths. So um, it's, about what you've done or what you're doing, not about some piece of paper that someone hands you. And then I moved down to Los Angeles in my last few semesters and started working for some of my professors and taking any and all jobs I possibly could. And I uh, really had a lot of mentors that set the foundation that, you know, for the first couple of years, take any opportunity, whether it's a, re a relationship, whether it's pay, whether it's something that's passion, but I tried to live by that motto for the first three years for sure. And I must have spent 250 days 
a year for the first couple of years on set, most of which I wasn't being compensated for, but it, that I was being, I was being compensated in other ways yeah, and, and learning. Absolutely. And I love that you talk about that. That's something that we stress a lot on the podcast is the importance of mentorship and finding someone that has gone before you to help you avoid some of those pitfalls in the industry, because there are so many ways to make mistakes with your time or your money and to have someone that's mentoring you and helping guide the way is so important. Yeah, completely. I mean, I don't feel like, uh, I don't, I don't feel like there's a fundamental process to making it happen in our industry. You know, yeah. there's so many different outlets in order for you to gain knowledge. And when I was going to school, um, I was really at the precipice of, uh, the digital kind of revolution for cinematography. My final year of school, they had announced the red camera and we were shooting on 24P video, but we had learned on shooting slide film and learned on shooting on uh, eight mil and 16 mil. So we had to understand emulsion. We had to understand doing dynamic range test and, and um, ASA test and figuring out all the technical, which um, everybody these days wants to pixel peep monitors and, kind of light from that that perspective of well, what's it look I got to see the monitor before I can tell you but we were really taught to use our eyes in a way that if you can translate the image with the way it looks to your to your eyes in the way that it makes you feel before you even roll the camera uh, and you learn through those trials and errors that the end result I feel like is much more tan I guess much more um, um, emotionally satisfying um, yeah when I try to approach it that way versus just setting up a, a monitor and then turning on lights according to that. But everybody's process is different. That's just what works for me. So. Amazing. And for those that don't know, what is the relationship between cinematographer and director on set? Because you guys are very much a team to bring anything that we have seen to life. Um, I think it depends on, on what genre, whether we're doing narrative or documentary or commercial work. Mm-hmm or even multi-camera comedy shows. I, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to make a living doing a multitude of, of kind of disciplines. Yeah. Um, I think at the end of the day, um, you need to be a confidant. You need to be a trusted force with that individual in a way that you want to dig into their, their psyche and their brain and the way things work. And, you know, every director has their uh, strengths and weaknesses of explaining, um, or visualizing what they expect. Um, so, I don't know, it's a mix between being their spouse, their therapist, their friend, sometimes, uh, you know, their adversary when it comes to challenging them on what you may feel is right or not right. Um, but I think my favorite collaborators are the ones that we can let go of ego and sit down and dig into more of what the purpose of the image that we're trying to create and i guess when i say purpose every every story kind of has its own style it's about finding it so if you're not afraid to throw a million ideas against the wall and realize maybe your initial thoughts are not right or wrong or indifferent and every director is different i've had some directors who shot list every single thing and have visual guides and boards and they know one thousand percent what focal length mm -hmm. um but that's not the typical process, I would say, most of it is finding inspiration, whether it's in 
music or poetry or still photography or even you know the commercial world is very much a copycat um game but in a way that i think it leads to the to the the most technically proficient images everyone's trying to emulate what they think is great now you're known for loving a challenge and always finding the beauty in the process what is one of your favorite parts about your job and the part that just brings you consistently back like you were talking about you worked for over 250 days a year and not being compensated what kept you coming back when you were having to still work a side hustle to do this um i think i think it's really the team um that 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 brings me the most joy and uh, why i keep coming back if i had to work in a vacuum by myself i'm just not that type of an artist um i'm much more of an extrovert uh, when it comes to needing um, affirmation, whether it's positive or negative, um, to drive me. So I think that the ability to get together with one, I've always thought that filmmaking is very much of uh, a democratic dictatorship, right? We all agree that one person is going to have the final say, but through that process, there's kind of a chain of command that you've got to empower the folks below you and vice versa to share accordingly whatever great ideas you have so it works its way into the collective of the project so it is amazing when you work on a narrative film and you start out with a very broad scope of what you're trying to achieve and every week and every day it gets closer and closer to what becomes the final film and through that process, through heartache and celebration, the movie creates itself in a way that uh, it, it couldn't have been done by one individual. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, is, it is the team aspect. And I, I played a lot of competitive sports as a, as a child and a, and a teenager and even in my 20s. Um, and I feel like it was always that process. You put in the prep time, you put in the work, you put in the, the discipline and the, and the focus in advance and then when you're when you're creating the images, they should kind of be on autopilot. You're very much using muscle memory and being reactive to to the to the to the experience in front of you at that time. And and I might also correlate that often because I do a ton of hand-held camera work. So for me, a lot of it is setting up scenarios of being able to react to talent and giving them the opportunity to move in a very fluid way and knowing I have a, a great first AC and gaffering key grip that are agile enough to react to on-the-fly changes. Amazing. Now, you've had projects go to South by Southwest, Toronto, Sundance. I'm sure it's hard to pick a favorite, but is there one that you're just really, really proud of helping bring to life? Well, I always, uh, you know, the process in which the Vicious Kind, which is the first uh, full-length feature that I shot in 2000 and Yes, we were shooting in 2008 and it premiered in Sundance in 2009. Mm -hmm. I've been out of film school for three years. I've been collaborating with Lee Krieger, the director of that film, on uh, small projects um, leading up to that. And it was just such, it was just such a, a, a beautiful process. And, and the result is amazing as well. The, the story is amazing. Lee did an amazing job on directing the actors outstanding and, and every person in between really brought it. But the reason that movie stands out so much for me is the camaraderie and the team that we created. We ended up shooting in 
upstate Connecticut um, at the end of spring and it was a late winter and we're all living in cabins and it was a bootstrap film and there was a lot of folks that weren't proven at the time. Adam Scott had done a couple small bits on some TV shows and it really launched his career and it was one of those things where um, I just have such fond memories of the process. I can visually remember sitting on the front porch of the, the main character's house during the prep process in the freezing cold for weeks, just scribbling away in my notebook, trying to translate the script into something that was going to come alive. And it's, um, and maybe it was because everybody was so young and eager to put in the extra mile or were, we're still figuring a lot of things out. So they didn't want to fail. So they put in, three times the amount of time they would normally do. I'm not sure I would need that same amount of prep process now because I feel a lot more comfortable in a lot of the choices I would make. But that movie always really um, stands out as a special, special film. And then um, I think the, the cardboard film that I did with um, Joseph Oxford that is a short film that if folks haven't seen it, it's called uh, Me and Her with a plus sign as the and. And it played in Sundance in 2014. And we worked on that film for five years and no one made a penny. And we, we were literally uh, sweating in 110 degree warehouses uh, day after day in downtown Los Angeles and trying to execute the beautiful artwork that Joey had created. And uh, there was over 200 people who worked on the film and 18 days of photography. It was just such an immense project that was very made, made for very few pennies. And uh, it really stemmed from the message and the movie has a beautiful story of love and regeneration and, and, and rebirth. And it's just, it's, it's pretty magical. I watched me and her last night and was blown away because in the, the world that we live in and streaming and so many content creators, very rarely do you start something not knowing what to anticipate. And it blows you away and it is truly unique. And that's what the short is. It, it is truly unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it's beautiful and so emotionally moving. Um, I wanted to talk about it actually more. I'm glad you brought it up. Can you tell us how you became involved and just a little bit of the behind the scenes of how the stories were shaped and how you all just made that beautiful world? Well, it's funny how relationships and um, and projects lead to, to new relationships and new opportunities. And we were talking about the vicious kind earlier. I hadn't known Joey up until that point. Joey was at, um, uh, Joey was working on the vicious kind as an office PA um, at the time, and we had become friends through the process and. You know, it's always, I always try to, it reminds me that so often, regardless of what role you have on set, that there's so many amazing storytellers in every department that you never know who the next, you know, um, Steven Spielberg is that's in some department as the RPA, right? You don't know who that individual is who's got these stories, but you have to be open because we all have value and messages that we want to share and everybody delivers them in different ways so we'd always just stay in touch and talked and he said hey i'm working on this thing and it's it's odd and i'm making these cardboard puppets with uh, little built-in 
mechanisms to make the eyes move or maybe not or it's got rubber band lips and there's a little bit of a story I want to do and I just want to pick your brain on it and like as soon as you just started telling me about it I was just so enamored with the process so um, my wife and I just supported the project along with um, Lindsay Lanzalotta and, and Aldo Lanzalotta who are some of the producers on The Vicious Kind and we had just you know developed it and worked on it and shot some proof of concepts in uh, Lindsay and Aldo's basement um, at the time and just wanted to see where it could go and do lots of rounds of revisions and notes and ideas. I mean it took over five years like I said earlier but it it was it was definitely a non-conventional path but I feel like so many projects that are worth it in the end are the ones that are driven by self and has nothing to do with outlying finances right it was yeah. just joey had to tell this story it was coming out of him and it needed the need to be made and we all had a passion and a love for it and um found a little bit of um scratch in order to get some funding to buy all the cardboard supplies and to pay for a little warehouse downtown for a few months when we got into production mode it was just I don't know. Everything just kind of came together as needed. And there were so many people along the way to make it happen. Amazing. And that was actually an Island Creek Pictures production, which you and your wife, Emily Bloom, started in 2009, which I want to segue into why was it important to you? I think it's this is kind of an example, but why was it important to you both to start a production company to bring a, a, a space and a home for these kind of creatives and their stories? Sure. Well, there's a certain amount of when you go to school that you learn how to, you know, develop a project and you learn all the roles and the positions. But the the aspect that you don't learn through that process is a little bit of the business side of things. Like, you know, how do you um, how do you protect yourself as a freelance contractor and how do you take care of yourself from payroll taxes and a million other little boring things? So Island Creek Pictures was a mix between having an outlet for all these little side jobs and projects that were coming to us while we were getting contracted to do work for other companies that we wanted to see come to light. And it just started in the beginning as like, hey, let's carry a little small production insurance policy and a little bit to rent gear here and there to supplement the equipment that we own, just so we could go out and shoot a little dock project or, you know, work on a little project uh, like... Um, like me and her, but it was really used at the time to you know, foster our own ideas um, and throw paint at a wall. So it it was never it was never a, sh a startup of like oh we're a production company that we're out taking on scripts and wanting to develop and be a profitable company. It was kind of like well. We're working, uh, my wife Emily, she worked for years as a production designer and then she transitioned into writing and directing. And as some of her commercial directing work was taking off, then we also hit the pause button with having a, a few children. So we have two young daughters right now, six and three. But through that process, there's been so many variables of what the company has meant. At times, it wasn't really creating anything um, original we were just using it out as loan outs for employees for uh, you know covering our own workers comp and, and and having a small insurance policy to help other filmmaker friends out yeah. uh, but now that since our daughters are getting a little bit older we've moved into a brick and mortar and we've um, actively been developing more longer form work and we've improved our commercial roster and you know it's just 
every every day is a new adventure to say the least <laughs> <laughs> i think that's why we all started this we were talking the other night about you know we did not go out and look for a job that had four walls that we yeah. were looking at every day for years we went in search of creating magic with other dreamers and i think that's what keeps us all coming back um right i have a lot of friends back east where i grew up in central maryland they're like well um do you know what when do you work again like, i don't know i got a job next thursday but other than that we'll see they go don't you freak out like how are you gonna you know pay your bills and you know it, it definitely requires a few years of grasping the ebbs and flows of what your ability is to survive and then stretching your bandwidth in order to follow all the the passion and purposeful films on top of doing a mix of the ones that you know that you have to to go out and pay the bills but you know it's also about trying not to 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 bend your your skill set and that's always the hardest thing i feel like all of us as artists struggle to do right it's like i um, I wish at times that maybe I had some other nine to five job that was just designed for making money. And then I could only do the ones that I felt like, um, resonate with me mm-hmm. soulfully. Um, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a precarious rope to walk. Right. It's like, well, but then I wouldn't be sharpening my skills and improving my relationships. So, but I would always say that we should all try to, not let the ends justify the means and that the path is ultimately the most valuable. Yeah. I'm not sure what person bestilled this idea with me, but it's like, um, I'm very grateful for it is that from a narrative side of thing, whether you're doing a documentary or a feature, whether it's short form or long form, um, you should, you should be striving to make an image that will be something that you're, children and grandchildren great-grandchildren um, are interested in wa- watching and that you're proud to sit down and have a conversation with them about you know and i've tried to to do that the best i could when i get those opportunities that is so beautifully put um i actually want to dive in from there having worked in so many mediums your resume is just endless and oh so many different areas of the industry can you walk us through the medium you feel perhaps most at home at and your pre-production creative process and how, how you get started on a project after being brought on? What's your like first time reading the script? Like how, how you go about visualizing the world that you want to create? Right. It's, it's tough to choose what path um, I feel most comfortable with. I think they all have their, pluses and minuses plus i feel like if i do the same thing too many weeks or months in a row like i I, not that i get bored but i um i I think i lose a little bit of my uh, creative stimulation so it's the ability to like switch your hat and go what is the best thing for this type of project i guess i'm talking for myself about the types of work that i do you know i'll do a couple days of commercial work here then i'll prepare for a television show or i'll be going to shoot a multi-camera um, comedy special and I worked a ton with Bobcat Goldthwait who also kind of dances between a variety of, uh, of abilities when it comes to he's we've done a feature like Doc together we've done a 
um, scripted television show. We've done feature films together. We've done, you know, up to 12 camera, like, kids specials for uh, Mo Willems. Like, it's, there's so many, <laughs> there's so many different aspects of the process. But, um, sorry, clarify again. I'm just babbling. Um, no, this is just the further proof of how many areas that you've worked in. I was, I was asking if there is one that you're most at home in. Could you talk us through what your pre-production process is a little bit? And then also just like, I know directors have this way uh, or TV directors that we've interviewed in the past, you know, the, the way that they read the script for the first time for, you know, an episode of TV or a film. Yeah. I was just curious how you like to introduce yourself to the, the story okay. and then start visualizing it. Sure. So I think I approach most projects the if we're talking from just a top-down perspective, I would say that I look at most projects that re require some sort of um, visual style or um, some type of cohesive idea that isn't like a paint-by-number where I'm giving boards for a commercial, right? Let's throw that out. That, that's already got a thing that they're trying to do and I'm capable of executing it or not and I was the right person to hire for the job. So let's, let's remove commercials from that conversation. Let's say even, um, um, so if we're doing documentary and uh, narrative work, feature work, um, I think it always starts with, I really am a firm believer of creating rules to allow the show to um, shoot itself right mm. uh, in a way that if you start thinking about um, the characters and and even in a documentary people are like well aren't you out just kind of capturing what's happening sure but you have the opportunity in the pre-production process to give um, value and reason as to why you choose to put the camera where and without being so heavy-handed that's the nuance of documentaries right how do you choose how to photograph an individual um, to where they trust you where they know that you are interested in observing their path in a way that um, resonates so this film uh, we just that just actually became available, I think, on Amazon Prime recently called Fire on the Hill, and it, it won the LA Film Festival, and it played in a bunch of others, and once uh, was played in Banff and a, and a handful of other films. is about um, this culture of cowboys in South Central Los Angeles and in Compton, um, and the director Brett. Uh, Valentine was very kind of enamored with wanting to create the style of uh, you know, some spaghetti westerns. And at first, when we sat down and talked about it, I'm like, "How do we?" There's the the old spaghetti westerns are so stylized. I was like, "How are we going to shoot a documentary in the vein of a stylized narrative western film that was very much scripted and designed?" Um, but then we sat down and we said, "Well." Um, these are our characters, we're learning, we're exploring them, we're figuring them out. How do we create long corridors for interviews and how do we create some tension and conflict in moments that we know we're gonna be in those situations? So what we did was we created a long laundry list of kind of uh, processes to follow. So if we were trying to show the establishment of a location or someone traveling to a place, then we would, always create big wide 
uh, cinematic, cinescope, um, left to right or right to left landscape shots where someone would be entering and exiting in long, deep frames, right? So there was just these ways where it was a really fun process from a documentary standpoint to think about, okay, we go from these very wides to then when we could get as close as we could and make it about details of eyes and faces and the struggle of the individual, whatever they're achieving at the time. And, you know, there's bull riders, there's bareback riders, there's all these different folks who are really uh, engaged in, in their craft. So trying to find the nuances between extremely wide to extremely long lenses um, was challenging at first, but then once we made all those rules and it's happening in front of us in real time and we had known what was working and not working, we would just continue to follow that. And, and the movie has a very unique style and tone and consistency and I'm very proud of the film, but if it wasn't for pushing those boundaries in the prep process that to talk about all the influences in the style, we would have never um, ended up with the result that we did. And I, and I commend Brett for pushing so hard to have that unique look and approach. That's amazing. I had no idea that I've always wondered watching documentaries, you know, how they have such a unique tone and voice to them. And I had never really thought about the process of deciding how to set up the lens or the shot to tell like a specific portion of the story and having those like ideas that you guys are playing around with. That's really amazing. Um, for more conventional like sitcoms or um, features, commercials, can you talk us through like the onset process of how you set up a shot or um, select your lenses, how, how you, you were talking about like you're, you're more confident and trusting your, your judgment and moving quicker now having done it for so many years, but how you, how you do work through that on set. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a balancing act uh, when it comes to choosing the right amount of coverage and collaborating with the director and the actors about the blocking and who's going where and how and when. I mean, so often we'll scribble a lot of overhead diagrams of, you know, the director and I'll sit during our kind of shot listing phase and uh, we'll hypothesize based on what locations are available or what we've already scouted and seen and we'll go, okay, cool. This uh, kitchen scene, there's a large window to the left of the, uh, the refrigerator and we want our subject to be whatever, grabbing a glass of milk and then stands um, by the sink where there's this, you know, big pool of light falling over there. But then on the day, the, the actor goes, nah, I don't, I don't want to do any of that because the character this, that, and the other, and they talk the director into why that makes sense for their character. And we all go, yeah, that's a completely logical idea. Um, so then our whole plan goes out the window. Yeah. So um, I would say it stems from the idea that you create um, a construct of what the scene's intention is, right? Mm -hmm. So if that intention of that person drinking a glass of milk in a kitchen is to be alone or confused or happy or angry, those will all influence the approach, whether it's a dolly or a zoom or handheld or big wide oneer or their 42 cuts. I, th I think it all stems from the writing and it stems from all those rules you've created in the pre-pro 
sit downs and the shot listing sessions to give value to that character. Maybe that character, we made a rule about that character that we're never going to shoot them on a longer lens than a 35 and we always want to be more than eight feet away from them. And these are very odd subjective reasons, but sometimes you've given value to those choices. And I think that's the most important thing is at the end of the day, if you give value to the, the, the decisions you've made in advance, well then your options of where to put the camera and move the camera on the day becomes more um, uh, obvious because you're like, okay, well, based on the way we see this character, I can't do this, that, or the other, and it's gotta be this. And then you go, cool, it's gonna be this, and now how do we make that the greatest shot with those limitations? And then when you compile all, you know, 23 minutes or uh, 47 minutes or an hour and a half of that, then you have consistency in the film. Right? You've created all these boundaries and rules that gives your, your characters in your film a unique approach. From an actor and writer mind, my yeah. mind is just blown right now listening to like all of the, the parts of the story that you guys are, are moving and reshuffling and you guys in fact are just building and rebuilding and rebuilding puzzles constantly and yeah. part of your job and it's it's just it's so amazing. I think all creatives have a different um, perspective on this if you will but yeah. I want to talk about award season for a second. Do you are, are you able to allow yourself to just enjoy watching or are you the type that is looking and like filing away cool things that you see or are you one that's like kind of deconstructing it and like looking at like what you might have done differently like how how do you absorb like when we're as a creative community there are a few months that we are just bombarded with rich top-notch content um, I love to celebrate the films to where I don't see or think about the filmmakers and I think that ha that's different for every person the film mm -hmm. that kind of calls your name or doesn't feel so heavy-handed or something that you gravitate towards but at the end of the day, uh, whenever I watch films with people who aren't in the filmmaking community, um, they're always like, you're so critical. Uh, like, I'm a real pain in the ass to watch a movie with, I think. <laughs> I don't but, know anyone that wants to watch anything with somebody that's been on set. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't think and that those lines cross. Only because I feel like I have such a high level of expectations for myself and the collaborators in the film industry that if I watch a movie, that I feel like they took a shortcut somewhere and it feels lazy or awkward or not fully fleshed out. I think that that's what critics do, right? Critics are the people who go, oh, you were aiming for this intention, but it fell short because I had to think about it too much. And if I have to think about it and analyze it in a way that, well, woulda, shoulda, coulda, what would I have done? Mm -hmm. Then I've probably been lost in the process of watching the movie or the TV show or the, you know, the documentary, whatever it is. Yeah. But the great ones are the ones where you get done watching the film and you're more interested in like, oh, could you believe what that character had to go through or what they did or wow, I didn't even know that was something that's going on in life or wow, that was really enlightening or inspiring instead of being like, what was up with that 
that flickering light in the background of that one scene. <laughs> like, you know, it's the balance between that. And some people suspend their disbelief a lot differently than others. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's what comes down to uh, taste and preference, right? It's like, you know, what works for me doesn't work for everyone. And that's also, I think, through the process of doing this for over 15 years now is understanding that um, my approach and style is not right for everyone and everyone else's uh, work is not necessarily right for me. But I think when I first started, I believed that I could shoot any kind of project and um, make it um, make it great. But I also think that's a disservice to the genre because the best films are the ones that are people who are so dialed into that's the thing that they need to be doing in life and not that they are trying to do all things in life. I love the stories of the people who just have to get that 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 style or that approach out of them. And yeah. when you watch a movie, right? When you you watch the the um, Wes Anderson films, you know, is within five minutes who made that movie, even if no one told you, right? It's like mm -hmm. uh, that's a very unique individual that has the ability to create. He's mastered his style of filmmaking that no one else can do that well. And that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. Now, I want to talk for a minute, just for fun. You were the cinematographer for Hit and Run, which is a hilarious and very action-packed, um, really, like, star-named feature film. Yeah. Um, and for anyone that hasn't seen it, it is... I mean, it kind of... It reminds me of Dukes of Hazard and Fast and the Furious. It's kind of what it feels like. That's an amazing compliment because when I sat down with the directors, uh, Dax Shepard and David Palmer, those were high on the list. We also had, we also had Smokey and the Bandit on there as, as, as a kind of uh, motivating, inspirational film. Um, and I think you guys really executed that. Um, can you talk a little bit about, and also, I mean, Bradley Cooper's hair we could talk about for um, sure. You know, we could talk about that for 30 minutes. Um, when I was, like, re-watching, like, a little clip of it last night, I was like, wow, I had really forgotten what they had done to his hair. Yeah. Um, but can you talk about how, you know, there's so much action now in TV and film, and, you know, the landscape is very much shifting um, to, like, the budget for TV. and Sure. Um, but for those kind of, like, those car chases and things like that, how do you as the cinematographer – is it an exciting challenge? Is it daunting and like very overwhelming because there's so many variables in that that shot? Um, how do you how do you take those on? Well, um, so that that script when it came to myself was through um, the one of the producers who was good friends with Dax, and I was reading it, and I was like, this script's over. At the time, I think. The page count wasn't the issue. It was like, it was only, I don't know, in the low 90s on the page count. Um, and, but the, the, the scenes, there was over like 225 scenes. And I guess when I say an issue, the reason it was an issue is because they were also talking about making this movie for less than $2 million on summer hiatus with all these uh, different television actors. And I was like, you know, on large action films, they're, they're spending $2 million in one day. And I was like, these, you know, these folks want to do 30 days of principal photography for this price point. And we were out to try to compete in the times when it's like fast and furious was the benchmark of like, 
action films, you know, they're flipping tractor trailers and <laughs> driving over bridges and launching cars 30 feet in the air. And it's like, well, how do we make a car chase movie where we can't do any of that and still make it fast and exciting mm -hmm. and fun? Um, so that, that film was by far my most challenging film technically to deliver day in and day out. And what we ended up doing was kind of remove the idea that we were gonna use all these motorized stabilized heads and all these kind of uh, pursuit arm cars and Russian arms and, and all these big high powered uh, uh, kind of the, the norm of what big action films use. Mm -hmm. and we really embraced the idea of, well, let's go the opposite route. Let's, let's use non-stabilized heads. Let's just mount cameras on the side of everything. Let's shoot handheld um, out of uh, cars at 60 miles an hour. Um, so it was, it was really one of those duct tape process on saying, if you put the, the raw intention of energy before all else, how do you get that out of the shot? And mm -hmm. I think that was part of our, our mantra to make that, that movie happen. And then also, how do you juxtapose and, and, uh, and, and also make that resonate with how sincere and sweet and Dax Dax was writing a love story for his wife Chris you know Kristen KB and uh he also wanted to be funny and have his best buds on set I mean it was really it was a, it was a culture where we we're all on set and we wanted to come together and be with all of our, our our favorite people to make pictures with and laugh and challenge each other you should be very proud it it stands up and it is still hilarious and I am in shock that you all did that for around $2 million because I would have never thought that. And I'm also just thinking about you guys hanging out of a car at 60 miles an hour. I'm assuming there were stud drivers. Yeah, like, so, so we, we were talking, I was talking about my wife, uh, Emily, earlier, and yeah. uh, she was the production designer on that film. So we, uh, you know, there was, it was, you know, Pillow Talk was about what tomorrow's set and scene was going to look like. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, there was many a times where I don't think I would do it now, but um, it was a non-union job. There was definitely safety officers and ADs and stunt teams and coordinators and the, the, the precision drivers. Um, but there are moments where I may or may not have been like ratchet strapped to the hood of uh, Dax's Lincoln, um, you know. You know. Would I hang? Would I hang off the back of a ATV going sixty plus miles an hour on off roads right now with uh, strapped to a pole with a steady cam in my hands? I don't know if I would do that right now, but it it got done at the time for what we needed to do. Exactly, and I gotta say respect to your wife for for being there and watching that and still keeping her wits about her. She would say, Dax and David, can you guys not kill my husband today? <laughs> All right, so the last question that we ask everyone on the podcast is what is one thing you would go back and tell your younger self? Oh, my. It is the stumper. Yeah, it's tough. I think, I think I've always been a person that was trying to please others in some fashion or another as a young, as a young person. You know, it was about excelling for whatever sport I was playing or if I was – making something um even in my younger days for a piece of art it was about trying to show someone else how great it was and the biggest thing that i would 
challenge my younger self, whether it was even a teenager or somebody in my twenties is, um, really think about, um, really think about the thing that you want that makes you happy. Yeah. Make, make, make images, make stories, whatever, whatever you're doing. And I think that's also part of finding purpose in my craft these days is that I need to respect myself knowing that this is an image that I'm proud of and it's going to be at the highest level that I'm capable of making it. And if it resonates with other folks, um, then great, I've succeeded. And worst case scenario, then I've made something that I'm proud of. It might mean that I might be unemployable in the future, but at least I've stayed true to what, what kind of, uh, you know, keeps my motor running. Amazing. Well, Bradley, I want to say thank you so much. I think you've actually more than any guest to date have given pieces of advice for the next generation. Like it's just been sprinkled all throughout. I know it has really left me feeling encouraged and inspired, especially in this, the current climate. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, one, one thing I'd love to just kind of reiterate in our um, filmmaking community is it's a pay it forward community. There's so many people who lent me camera gear and lenses and lights and and uh, gave me time and actors that came out and uh, bootstrapped and worked for for fun and for exploration for for just that purpose. And um, regardless of where you are in your career, um, the ability to do for those that are coming up and also helping people that are above you, regardless of doing it for money, it's it's well worth the adventure and you get you improve your skills along the way. And you might find a trusted collaborator that you'll, you know, make the next great film. Hi everyone. Thanks for listening. And to my guest today, Bradley Stone Cipher. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss an episode. And tell a friend. Our goal here at What's My Frame is to encourage, educate, and inspire our creative community. To learn more, you can follow us on Instagram at What's My Frame. We have daily blogs, industry news, and weekly giveaways. I'm Laura Linda Bradley. Thanks for listening to What's My Frame.